Well, we are jumping into the Bible Jam this morning and, and beginning this week. If you're, if you're new here, this is a bit, a bit of an annual quest that we take as a, as a church to reinvigorate um, personal Bible reading. We, we just recognize as, as pastors just the, what, what God has called us to as His people and the conditions of the world around us that we face. We, we, we will not survive unless we are a people who are affected by God through His Word. And if we're going to be affected by God through His Word, then we need to read it. And we need to learn how to love reading. And we need to to normalize talking about Scripture as a community, right? We, we, We talk about so many different things. There's always some headlines, some news item that you can start up a conversation uh, with somebody else about. But but when's the last time you just talked about, here's what I'm reading in scripture this week with with a fellow believer. And so that's a bit of what the discipleship groups are designed to do. Um, You just do it at your own pace and your own settings that that work for you. The the registration is just so that we can know, you know, here are the groups that are getting together. And it's always exciting to to, to see people that you didn't even realize they, they knew one another in the in the church and maybe they, they didn't until the, the Bible jam. They just decided let, let, let's gather together weekly every other week and, and, and talk about our interaction with scripture. And, and, and Cliff did a good job of, of kind of setting up in the, in the video what we've done. Um, last year we, the, the theme was drawing near to God about seeing things in scripture and savoring them and, and meditating on the, on the truth that we encounter there. Uh, a couple of years ago the, the theme was, was God's big picture. It was about the, the grand redemptive storyline of the Bible. And this year, we're going to talk about how to do a character study in Scripture. And, and we're going to begin the first few weeks with the life of David. But here's a premise for what we're doing. Okay, there are realities to people's lives that we need to see that are worth paying attention to. And we need to learn how to do this. You know, one of the reasons why I read fiction is, is because I find people there that I'll never meet in person, but, but they're people that I need to know. Uh, case in point for that, I was, I was reading the uh, Swedish novel, A Man Called Uva. And Uva, he's a classic neighborhood curmudgeon, right? He, he's some ways older man. He's reserved. He seems to be always impatient with the world around him. He, he's a man of staunch principles and strict routines and a short fuse. You know, if you drove down his street, he'd be sure to tell you that cars are only allowed in the designated areas in his neighborhood association, right? You might know somebody like this. He, he seems like a pretty flat character, but then you get to know his story. You, you learn about his upbringing. You, you get to know him as a man who has experienced love and loss. And then things aren't quite so simple. But we often have an inability to see the layers that are in someone else's life. You know, in, in counseling, I find that to be a struggle for people. When, when they, they talk about the people in their world that they're frustrated with, they, they, they tend to put them in only one category. And, and so there's an inability to see things from the other person's perspective. That they don't try to understand them. They don't have an appreciation for the life that they've lived, or the, the, the experiences that have contributed to their weaknesses and their fears. And so relationally, they remain stuck. And this is how getting to know the people in the Bible helps us because biblical characters are not flat. They're not one-dimensional. We need to know their humanity, to let them be more than just felt figures in a Sunday school class. And through that, we'll not only better understand ourselves and the people around us, but we'll also see how God works in the settings of life, how his great story finds its way into ours. And you see, when we do a character study, we're, we're, we're not ignoring the big picture, right? The, the grand redemptive narrative of Scripture. And, and that might be a concern for some of us. And I get it. You know, if, if we treat the life of Abraham like that's some 
motivating anecdote about how God's leading people into new ventures and causing them to take risky opportunities. And you just got to jump, man. And God's got something big for you. We don't mention anything about the fact that this is a, this is a major episode in God's plan to bring his blessing into a fallen world. Then, then we have missed the point. But we also can't forget that Abraham was, was a real man. That God told, hey dude, uh, leave your family, sell your business, change your religion, and, and go somewhere that you've got no idea about. And so a couple summers ago, we emphasized God's big picture. But, but as Pastor Keith has put it, when, when God goes to paint a picture, he uses human canvases. He's written his story in, in real time and space with real people. And so let's not dehumanize them. We, we, we need to know the redemptive plot of Scripture, but we also need to pay attention to the characters and, and what they help us to see in our own lives and calling. Here's how Mark Boda puts it. He writes, As we encounter the various aspects of David's story, you need to first consider how this anticipates and is fulfilled in Christ. But after doing this, you are compelled by the New Testament witness to reflect on the way in which the various aspects can become a reality for us who share the name Christian, that is, anointed ones. And we find both of those emphasized in Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3. He talks about how the Old Testament scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation in Jesus Christ. If you don't know that about the Old Testament, it's going to feel very distant from you. But he also says that they're profitable for teaching and for correction and for rebuke and for training in righteousness. But the way that teaching and that instruction get presented, it's, it's not through abstract principles. Right? The, the much of the Bible, it's not a doctrinal index or a how-to manual. There, there aren't top five lists of things to believe and practice. And that's one of the reasons why people have trouble reading it. Because we don't have patience to read the lives that unfold there. But then we miss the impact that God intends them to have on us. There's a, there's a scene in the novel about Uva's childhood. And, and the, the author tells a story about a time when he watched his, his father maintain his integrity, even though it, it cost him personally. And I won't go into the details there. But the narrator adds this comment about that. He writes, Had Uva been the sort of man who contemplated how and when one became the sort of man he was, he might have said that this was the day he learned that right has to be right. But he wasn't one to dwell on things like that. He contented himself with remembering that on this day, he decided to be as little unlike his father as possible. I just love that. But, but notice, it's not some abstract principle that affected him. It was seeing that lived out in his dad that left an impression on him. And, and certain people have that kind of influence on us. That there are figures that stand out like that in our personal past in history, and most importantly, in Scripture. We, we can't quite say about King David that we should be as little unlike him as possible. Right? We're going to learn next week that this was far from a perfect man, but he is someone who's worth our attention and following. And Hebrews thirteen seven tells us to remember our leaders and to imitate their walk. And so God gives us concrete examples and, and that includes the Old Testament cloud of witnesses that he talks about in chapter 11. And David makes that list. David was a man of great calling and impact. He, he has legendary status. It seems like he lived life in the extremes, right? There, there are some extreme successes that he is notorious for. And there's also extreme failures. But the banner over his life is that he was a man after God's own heart. And we're going to explore that today in the early chapters of his life. So if you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. And while you're turning there, 
David Powelson gives us some guidance as to what we're looking for. He writes, change is a lifelong process in which we witness thematic continuities. Sin is usually not newly hatched. Righteousness doesn't fall like random fire from heaven. I think we wish it would. (laughs) That'd be nice, just another dose coming our way. But as you get to know a person, you learn to see patterns and themes in the interplay of existential and situational factors. Just as students of scripture learn to see patterns and themes in the Bible. That's what we're looking for. When we survey David's early life, there, there are certain themes that surface. He had a heart that answers to God first, a heart with a song in days of trouble, and a heart of conviction and courage. And, and, and these things, they, they didn't develop in him randomly. God used formative experiences to shape him into this kind of man. And and here's what we're going to encounter. David was a man for whom personal preference and people's approval took a backseat to God's call, interests, evaluation, and equipping. And there is throughout these chapters a demonstration of the failure of human assessment and responses. People are getting it wrong. At every step of the way. But the person who learns how to see the way that God sees is greatly used by him. And how we need that today. So let's read together. Chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If, if Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice And I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Well, it's clear. We've just jumped into the middle of a story here. And and you can feel the tension. It it is thick. There, There are failed expectations. There is grief. That's mentioned here. There, there, there's a real concern about getting killed. There, there's, there's secrecy, a, a covert mission to set up a new government. All right, well, what, what's going on here? Well, you, you jump into 1 Samuel. The, the, the background for that setting is in, is in the book of Judges. And, and those were dire times. For Israel. And Pastor Keith talked about it a little bit uh, last week. Any of y'all go back and read Judges 19 after he uh, told that story there? Just heartbreaking conditions. And, and, and there's this refrain that shows up throughout that book. Right? In those days, there was no king in Israel. And people did what was right in their own eyes. God's people desperately need godly leadership. And, and so it, it might seem as a, a bit of a surprise that then you come to 1 Samuel and the people ask for a king, they get rebuked. Isn't that what they need? Right? What, what's going on here? Well, it's not that, that, that they need a king that's an issue. It's why, right? Their, their heart found God's kingship to be insufficient, And so when Samuel warns them about, hey, here's what you're going to experience if you put somebody like this in place, they reply this in chapter 8, verse 19, no. They just tell him, no. But there shall be a king over us. Why? That we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They want a king that they can see. And maybe more important than that, that their enemies can see. And, and notice their, their, their naturalism that's there. Right? We don't just want this invisible God reigning over us. That's fine. 
Yeah, we, we want Yahweh to stick around and bless us and say something before, you know, a battle begins. Uh, but but we, we, need, we need somebody who's really there, right? Somebody you can really see and that the other nations are going to find impressive. That they, they feel like God's leadership is an embarrassment and a liability. And, and this is the failed self-diagnosis of sinful humanity. You think all the trouble you just went through in the book of Judges is really because God wasn't enough for you? Is that honestly your takeaway lesson, right? We, we could be in, in the middle of experiencing difficulty and totally clueless about what's actually going on. And so God gives them the kind of king they want. And note this, God can discipline you by giving you exactly what you desire. And they walk through that. And Saul's the king after the people's heart. He, he's the king who was right in their own eyes. It, sa- it says that he was a head taller than all the people. And so he's literally somebody that they could look up to. And initially, everything seems great. I mean, he, he, he is impressive. He, he leads the, the people to military success. He's a strong leader. But then you come to chapter 13. And it opens with this odd statement. 13 verse 1. You can flip there a couple pages back. It says this. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel. You know, translators struggle with that sentence. But, because literally the Hebrew reads, Saul was a year when he became king and he reigned for two years over Israel. Right, what's happening there? Uh, you realize that the Bible uses sarcasm and it'll make your Bible reading a lot more fun if you, if you learn how to pay attention to it, right? Uh, that might be what's happening here. It, it's a, a dig at Saul's immaturity when he came to power and the ineffectiveness of his reign. It's like, it's like they just chose a one-year-old and put him in charge and his term was pretty short-lived. It lasted two years and then came to an end. But either way, we, we, we begin to see Saul's pride and presumption lead to his downfall. In chapter 13, the army of Israel is encamped at Gilgal. They're about to face the Philistines in battle. And it says that the Philistines came upon them with chariots and, and horsemen uh, like the sand on the seashore in multitude. That's a significant description for Israel. They're supposed to be that way and their enemies are encroaching upon them with that kind of impact. And and Saul is waiting for Samuel to come offer a sacrifice before the battle to seek God's favor. But Samuel is delayed. Seven days go by. There's a statement that Gandalf makes to Frodo that a a wizard is never late. He always arrives precisely when he intends to. And I guess Samuel feels that way about prophets as well. I've tried to use that line when I show up late for staff meeting, but Peter doesn't buy it. I just arrived precisely when I intended to. Uh, People are afraid and, and they begin to scatter. And Saul's heart answers to the people. He's a pragmatic guy. So he decides, I'm just going to go ahead and offer the sacrifice myself. And and, and note this, there there is this strange interplay between kind of self-confidence on the one hand and people-pleasing on the other. And and those two things, it's kind of paradoxical, but they, they can sit in the same individual and often they come from the same motive. And you see that in Saul. But then Samuel arrives just as he finishes, and a prophet is right on time. And this is the conclusion that comes from that. Samuel tells him in verse 14, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And here David's first introduced, not by name yet, but, but all of, of 1 Samuel, the beginning, it, it's kind of ramping up to 
David. And I've taken the time here because one of the ways that we understand David is by contrasting him with Saul. Right? In, in character studies, Saul is what you call a, a foil character to David. Right? He's a bit of an opposite uh, at, at different points. And as Saul's storyline develops, you then come to chapter 15. And there's the second interaction between Samuel and Saul that sounds like this. And on this occasion, they, they are facing off with the Amalekites and they are told to devote everything to complete destruction, to uh, spare nothing as a, a, an exercise of God's judgment and to preserve Israel's purity so they're not influenced by the, the temptations and the opportunities that are around them. Uh, and uh, Saul decides to almost do that. And again, Samuel shows up just in time. And Saul says, I did it, man. Everything that God asked me, we have taken care of. I just love statements like this in the Bible. Samuel's like, really? What's this bleeding of sheep that I hear in my ears? And he's like, well, uh, I was kind of saving some of that on the side, you know, to sacrifice. God would probably want that, right? He, he, he relies on his own interpretation rather than the direct revelation and command of God. He, he does what would seem best to him. And what seems best is taking some spoil from the battle. And so Saul tells him, in verse, Samuel tells Saul in verse 28, the Lord has torn the kingdom from you today and given it to one of your neighbors who is better than you. And, and Saul's priorities, they just surface more and more as this unfolds. Look at what he says in verse 30. I've sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. And he just immediately goes into damage control mode. Yeah, I know, I, know, I kind of didn't do everything like I was supposed to. I've compromised. Uh, but that doesn't have to cancel the whole ceremony of us bowing before the... There's, there's no reason to shut down the photo op, right? Can we just kind of put all this... Pat, the people don't need to know about this. And Samuel acquiesces and goes along with the facade. But things are not as they seem. God has moved on from Saul being king. Even though visibly he's still the one who's sitting on the throne. It's not what's on the surface that matters. And and so that's the irony of Samuel coming to anoint one of the sons of of Jesse under the cover of sacrificing to the Lord. Right, Two times Saul justifies his obedience his disobedience was sacrifice, right? We needed to offer the sacrifice before the battle. I saved, you know, these things as a sacrifice to God. And so it's going to be through a sacrifice that Saul's replacement is installed here, right? He only allows Saul and Israel to see what they have a heart to see. And so we pick up again, chapter 16, verse 6. When they came... He looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This is informative. Even Even Samuel is still using a bit of the Saul value system here. But outwardly towering figures matter little to God. Right? The the trending names, the talk of the culture, the, the people that everybody finds impressive, the people that have learned how to build up a platform and have all this kind of visible influence, right? If, if on the inside, there's not a heart that's sold out to God's purposes, God assigns them to irrelevance from his 
perspective. Does this person value what God values and love what God loves? In verse 8, Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Right? The, the, the suspense just builds. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these and they've run out of sons. Uh, or so it seems. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he has come. Some church meetings just go on forever. Uh, And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And I actually don't think that's supposed to be a compliment in this account. That's kind of like saying, oh, he was really cute when he came. Um, And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that moment forward. This is the setting for David's call. He's from a little town of Bethlehem and he is the youngest of his brothers and, and he's not even invited to this meeting. Uh, it, it's like they forget there's another member of the family until a prophet has to have a sense from God that maybe there's somebody else. Has everybody come to the family reunion here? Is anybody missing? But he is noticed by God. David's name means beloved. He is sought out and pursued and chased down by the love of God. And we put this in the context of the rest of scripture, the rest of biblical theology. And we, we, we remember there's nothing in David. There's nothing in, in, in his outward appearance or even in his moral character that necessarily provides God as some reason and motivation for why he should love him and be gracious to him. It's just the mercy of the Lord that has set him Apart, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, not many of you were of noble birth when you were called, David included. But God's going to raise him up to a noble position. And Mark Boda writes, the Old Testament accentuates the fact that David had no part in engineering his own rise to power. There, there's, there's no maneuvering or manipulation or underhanded politics that he's using. It's just... Humbly receiving what God has graciously provided. But there, there is something that God sees that everyone else has failed to see. He looked on the heart. Right, we are a culture today. If you think it was a problem back then, we are a culture today that loves outward appearances. It's an image-driven world. The, the, the social media versions of people is what catches our attention. We live in what Charles Taylor described as, as a society of mutual display. So we're all kind of play, playing the game of, of, of what is visible to us that we're going to applaud in you and, and hope that you'll return the favor to me as well. And so we spend so much effort trying to manage that. We think so much of life is what is publication worthy. But here, David has to be located. He's not in the public scene. He's out with the sheep. And you know, the vocation of a shepherd meant much time spent alone in these ordinary, unapplauded places in slowness and silence without constant interruptions and distractions facing yourself and facing your God. And, and, and there's something that gets formed in David from a life of solitude. The philosopher Hannah Arendt writes, a life spent entirely in public, the presence of others, 
becomes, as we would say, shallow. While it retains its visibility, it loses the quality of rising into sight from some darker ground which must remain hidden if it's not to lose its depth. That is a very helpful phrase. Rising into sight from some darker ground. Is everything about your life visible? Is there no hidden depth? Right? No pursuits that you value that maybe nobody else besides your family or, or even just you and God knows about. It doesn't get published, but it's, it's time invested in deeper places. And God forms in you a, a well from which to draw and then something comes out that will be a benefit and, and, and service to those around you. But it's something only worth your time if it improves how you look on the surface. And so we'll make sure we exercise or update our homes or put in long hours at work or in school and we all the while find no time to pray, to do just basic Bible reading, to do the Bible jam, right? There, there is a depth to David that surfaces at key moments in his life, but it was cultivated when no one was watching. And so what God sees is a sincere heart, a heart without pretense. Who he is publicly, it's, it's not a show. It comes from an inward Reality. This, this is a young man who developed convictions about what mattered when there was no one around telling him that was worthwhile. And so Psalm 78 offers this commentary. It says, He chose David his servant, took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance. With upright heart, He shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. A heart of integrity. An answer to God first. And and even his anointing as king is a private occasion. And there's no live streaming of this event. No one's pulling out a phone to post pictures with a Bethlehem location tag here, right? This is one of the most significant turning points in the redemptive plan of God, and yet so little noise is made about it, right? This is, again, this is informative about how God's purposes work in in real people's lives. He's there doing things behind the scenes in quiet places, right, that that are going to move nations around. And you and I may not even realize that's taking place in the life of the person sitting next to us. But we can learn something about the timing of God's work here and how he prepares people for their calling because David's about 16 years old when he's anointed as king, but it's not until he's 30 that he's installed as king over Judah and then later on over all Israel. And this is... This is challenging in the immediacy of our age. And everything's microwavable. You know, if, if the page doesn't refresh within five seconds, we just we, we want to delete that app from the phone. But, you know, we, we, we've got desires that stir in us that, that are real, maybe from God, things that we want to see happen and pursuits that, that we want to go after and, and, and we expect that to kind of show up in reality by next week. We want there to be these quick, linear, one or two step processes to move forward to some idea that just entered our minds yesterday. But so often life doesn't work that way. And often God doesn't work that way either. Well, what was David doing all those years? It's happening in the meantime. We'll look down at verse 19. We find this. This this is when Saul sins for David. And he says, Send me David your son who is with the sheep. Uh, The dude is the king elect. uh, But he has returned to 
the sheepfold. And then he spends some time in the court of Saul and he, he rises to a bit of notoriety. He, he's well received there. Right? People take notice about him. But then after he spent time there, the next chapter over in chapter 17, verse 14, we're told that David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So he's been promoted to alternating between shepherd and errand boy after he spent time in Saul's palace. A.W. Pink writes, From the attractions or distractions of the court, he returned to the fold. The influence of an exalted position had not spoiled him for humble service. The principle which is here illustrated is one that we do well to take to heart. Patience has to be tested. Humility manifested. Faith strengthened before we are ready to enter into God's best for us. We must use rightly what God has given us if we desire him to give us more. Now you want to have influence? Learn how to serve in unnoticed places. In your families, in your neighborhoods, in the church. You need some ideas, talk to Pete Jefferson. He specializes in that kind of ministry. <laughs> uh, see a second theme here. There, there's a, a heart with a song in days of trouble. Right? We, we, we come to the end of the account of David's anointing and, and then we read in verse 13 that the Holy Spirit came upon him. And then verse 18 and, and throughout his story, this is these precious words that the Lord was with him. But about this same time we're told in verse 14 that the Spirit departed Saul. That is the anointed office, the sense of God's presence and his favor left him. And that's frightening. And in its place, there, there is this harmful spirit that comes to torment him. It was an expression of God's judgment on a hardened heart. And, and you know, uh, he must have been a difficult guy to be around because his servants say, uh, can we get a musician in here? Can we do something to manage his mood? Like, get this guy a drink and a Spotify playlist, please. Anything that will help. But, but, but notice this. Saul is experiencing the agitation and the unrest that comes from a life of compromise. But instead of responding with repentance, he tries to drown it out with distraction. Right? He, he can't face the sound that's inside of his own soul and so he wants to turn up the volume on anything else. And again, Saul serves as a contrast to what we know to be true from David in the rest of scripture. Right? David had a heart that would go to God in, in the midst of his sin, in the midst of his trouble, in the midst of his torment, he would draw near to the Lord rather than retreat away from him. He was a man of worship. And so David's name comes up, verse 18, where the young men answered, Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who's skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence and the Lord is with him. He's a man of character, but he, he's also someone who had invested time in becoming skillful with his instrument. He, he had taken it out with him on those long days with the sheep, right? Those, those dark and lonely night spent in the wilderness, he brought along his heart, harp, or he brought along his lyre, and he poured out his heart to the Lord. As he tended to the sheep, he watched over them, he, he wrote songs like Psalm 23, aware, I, I've got a shepherd as well. There, there's someone who is watching over my soul with the same measure of intentionality and same pursuit and, and same protection 
that I am showing to these sheep. You know, David, David knew loneliness. From these early chapters, it's clear that he knew what it was like to be mistreated by his family, by the people around him. Soon he's going he's to be on the receiving end of outright attack, threats on his life. Right? Those are the factors that can lead you to withdraw. Just hang up an emotional do not disturb sign. To stay away, to, to, to search out secret escapes. But David poured out his experience before his God. And as you read the Psalms, there, there seems to be a song for every occasion. I want to encourage you to do this. Pay, pay attention to the little titles. Right? So you have verse 1, but you have some smaller font that's right above it. That tells you, what's the background for this? Sometimes you don't have that. But in many places, we're, we're given some kind of context, some, some kind of life reality, human storyline that these words come out of. They're not just generic phrases. They're not truth that floats in midair. They're, they're rooted down in real suffering and real trials and real difficulty and real blowing up your life with your own sin and God's grace never runs out. Just give you an example of this. Psalm 34. You find this little title of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. When the world's that about? Well, you're going to read it this week, right? Remember Eric mentioned uh, the Summer Bible Jam cards there. There's a few things on this card. There's a reading plan uh, for each day of the week. Uh, for this week, you'll get a, a new one next Sunday as we follow along with David's life for these uh, first few weeks. There's some discussion questions um, as you gather with uh, your discipleship group. And then an additional resource there. But one of them listed there, right? You see 1 Samuel 20 on Wednesday and Psalm 34 and Psalm 52 selected a couple of psalms that go with those episodes in David's life. What, what's this about? Well, you guys who are familiar with David's story, you, you know later on, Saul does catch on to the fact that this dude, this dude's going to take the kingdom from me. Not because David tries to get that by force, but he's won over the people. And he, and, and he has struck Saul at the very value system that is in his heart. Right? Jealousy, people-pleasing, these are, these are shared ingredients inside this man. And so... He wants to take the dude out. And so, this, 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 right, these are not children's Bible type episodes. This is, the, this is the level of danger that David finds himself in, that he has to escape to Philistine territory. Right? This is after, we're about to come in chapter 17, David kills that dude, Goliath, their favorite champion. They know who he is. And things are so dangerous for him in Israel that he escapes to the territory of the people whose giant he killed. And he shows up there and they kind of catch on, David's here. And so his only option at that point is to pretend to be insane. And so I just love some of the descriptions that are there. It says that he was scratching the walls and letting his spill run down his beard. So he's, he's foaming at the mouth Right? When, when things are feral, you tend to stay away from them a little bit. I heard about a badger that found itself in some uh, historic church in, in Scotland. And, and they had to like cancel their, their tours that were happening there because everybody had to stay away and give the badger his space, man. Uh, David plays that character here. And so they conclude he's lost his mind. Just stay away and leave him alone. And he manages to... Escape. This is a this is a humiliating experience for this man. He gives us these words. Psalm thirty four, verse one. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh. Magnify the Lord with me. 
Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. And he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. What? What do you mean? Dude, you just barely survived and made a complete fool of yourself. What do you mean you're never going to be ashamed? And David says, yeah, and you'd be a fool to think that's all that was going on in that moment. God was there. Things are not as they seem. God was intervening for me. He was rescuing me. He was preserving me. The most ridiculous means God shows his care. And since it was the honor and the glory of God that had won over his heart no matter what he looks like, his reason to rejoice. Now, not all the Psalms sound this positive, right? Many of them are Psalms of lament, of confusion, of grief. Right, you, you get one of the benefits of reading the Psalms is you get divine permission to ask God why? Where are you? How long is this going to go on? I'm surrounded by darkness and darkness alone. Right, there is so much emotional reality that you encounter in those words. You you, you get the real David in the Psalms, right? They are the exact opposite of being fake. John Calvin called the Psalms an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. He doesn't retreat from his experience. And so often, we don't want to see ourselves. It's one of the reasons why we never get quiet. Because there's so much that we have to confront. So many of our motives and our anxieties and our fears. And we see what's really roaming around inside of us. And so that's why we'd rather have the busyness and the distractions. David stares honestly at himself and he goes to God as his refuge in the midst of brokenness and pain. There's a song in his heart. And I love that about so many of you. I I love, you know, the reason why we don't like totally just kill the lights in here during our our worship set is we we, want to join with one another in singing. We bring all our individual lives and stories and trials and, and hurt and victories and setbacks and, and we sing the realities that are true about God and his faithfulness and his mercy. And it's one of my greatest joys to see that in your faces. The, the people that I know, the diagnoses that I, I know you have recently received, the grief that you are walking through and yet you're singing. We see something else about David, as he's called to play before Saul here, right? Saul invites into his palace, unbeknownst to him. That's a good word to use. Nobody uses unbeknownst anymore. Uh, the very man that God is giving away the kingdom to, right? That, that's, again, God's behind-the-scenes sovereignty at work here. But I bet David was very aware of that. I bet that was on his mind as he stood before this man, and still had to work through his little set list on his harp. Could you imagine the fear that would grip you in this kind of moment? I I, I think about uh, another life, man, uh, Louis Zamperini, that's another life worth knowing. The the book Unbroken tells his story. There's there's so much that he went through that's just unreal. It seemed like it's it's fiction. I mean, just give you one example. There's this moment where he's out on a, a raft in the middle of the ocean while Japanese fighter planes are shooting at him and sharks are attacking him from underneath. And so they have to duck under the raft for cover to avoid the bullets while ducking on top of the raft and fending off the sharks with their oars. And that's not what I'm drawing attention to this moment, but just whet your appetite Read that book and find out about that life. But one of the things he did earlier 
in, in his life was he actually ran in the 1936 Berlin Olympics. And uh, he was noticed there, and if you learn anything unsurprising about Germany in the 1936 Berlin Olympics, they weren't too keen on losing events. <laughs> and they did whatever they could, whatever uh, lawful or unlawful means necessary to make sure that they had an advantage uh, that year. And uh, while he's there, he actually steals a Nazi flag as a souvenir, uh, is confronted by SS soldiers, barely escapes that. But before he leaves the city, he actually shakes, shakes hands with Adolf Hitler. And, tell, and he tells them, so you're the runner that everybody's talking about. Uh, this is that kind of moment for David here. But, but David had a heart of conviction and courage that's our final theme to see. So flip over to chapter 17. You'll read this this week. And so we're not going to look at all the details this morning. It's a familiar story to us. The armies of Israel and the Philistines, they're, they're stationed at the Shephelah, which is a series of valleys in between Philistine coastal plain and Israelite hill country. And so there's a little bit of a geographical barrier that's separating the two armies, the two forces as they face one another. And, and we know this is not a, a, a typical battleground, right? Uh, a nine-foot military man named Goliath of Gath with his, just his upper body armor weighing over 150 pounds steps forward and he challenges anybody to take him on. He defies the ranks of Israel and blasphemes their God. And this goes on day and night for 40 days. And no one responds. And David is at the height of his career as an errand boy and arrives on the scene. He's not a child here, right? Uh, don't think of like eight-year-old David facing off at a giant. He's probably in his late teens, early 20s here, but not yet at the normal age where you are joining in Israel's military. And, and he hears these words and something burns on the inside of him. Right? This was not a confrontation David was planning for. These kinds of moments... When, when, when everything is on the line and, and there needs to be rising from us in awareness of what is true in God and a, a boldness to face the struggle and the challenge, they don't advertise themselves to us from a distance. It's like, all right, June 21st, that's the day I'm going to prepare for. You know this. That's not the way it works. There has to be something that's already been formed in you and sitting in you on the day to step into God's calling arrives. And so David says in verse 32 to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Take heart. I'll face him. And... That's not well received. <laughs> it'd be nice. I mean, if you're already going to be uh, facing a nine foot tall giant, it'd be nice to have a little bit of support. Uh, but instead, his motives are questioned by uh, his, his brother Eliab. Eliab taunts him. Saul seeks to discourage him, right? Not, not just God's enemies, but God's people stand in the way here. Of course, Goliath scorns him and David is undeterred because he's not taking a poll from the people about what matters. God has convinced him about the value of his name and about his ability to equip the people that he has called. And so he stands alone. Look at what he says in verse 36. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them for he has defied the armies of the living God David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of 
the Philistine, right? He sees not as man sees. He doesn't just see what's visible. He sees Goliath for who he is and he sees God's people and their God for who he is, right? Goliath is both, both less than he seems and more than he seems. He, he is, in, in the words of Second Peter 2, an irrational beast. And David says, I've faced those before. God's delivered me from them. I've, I've faced bears. And he's also, in the words of First Peter 5, a roaming lion. He knows spiritually what's taking place here. And he sees, and you are the armies of the living God. You think that when you, you got a king named Saul that God took the day off? Saul's not out there fighting this battle, right? Abner's not out there. The significant, powerful, impressive men of the day are nowhere to be found in this moment, but God still reigns. And David knows this. Where'd that come from? And that's what we need to see. I want that. A.W. Pink writes, it was away from the crowds in the quietude of pastoral life that David was taught the wondrous resources which there are in God available to faith. There in the fields of Bethlehem he had by divine enablement slain the lion and the bear. This is ever God's way. He teaches in secret that soul which he has elected shall serve him in public. Ah, my reader, is it not just at this point that we may discover the explanation of our failures? It's because we've not sufficiently cultivated the secret place of the Most High. That's our primary need. But do we really esteem communion with God our highest privilege? Do we realize that walking with God is our source of strength? There had been... Direct dealings between David's soul and God out there in the solitude of the fields. And it is only thus that any of us are taught how to get victory. Whitney, thank you so much for your Summer Bible Jam testimony and for the time you invested in direct dealings between your soul and God in which he was faithful to prepare you for this kind of moment. David, David is committed to God's honor and glory more, more than his own safety and comfort. Eric, if you'd come back up, man. Here's a statement from a New Testament life, one that we're not gonna be studying this summer, but well worth our attention. The Apostle Paul, Philippians 1 Verse 20 says, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Right? That sounds backwards. Think about the experiences that, that bring you to a place of feeling ashamed. A feeling that did not play out how I hoped. Right? That, if anything, that's what we want to stay away from. We don't take risks because we, we, want, to, we want to preserve. I'd rather, I'd rather stay thinking that things are okay than to fail. Right? And so, it's like, I, 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 don't, want to, I don't want to blow it. I don't want to be seen... As, as somebody who doesn't have it together. And so I'm going to retreat away from moments of faith and challenge that call forth that from me. Paul's value system is totally turned upside down. That I might not be ashamed, but that people will still think I'm up to snuff. That Christ will be honored by my life or by my death. Let me stay and serve sacrificially and labor or take me out. But do not in any way detract from Christ being exalted in my life because that would mean shame. That is the definition of failure. And that's how David saw it as well. 
And so he is held in derision, faces this giant, and one stone, one little word, fells him. Right? The, the anointed king crushes the head of the serpent seed. He faces off with this beast of the field and leads his people to victory. Which is, by the way, what we first need to take away from this. If, if, we, if we start by writing ourselves in this story and think we're David and, and what's the giant that you're facing, your personal giant, if, we, if, if that's all this, this is to us, then we have missed the big picture. We have missed God's agenda for it. You know where you and I are here? Uh, we're, we're not out on the field. We, we're with Israel towering in the corner in fear, needing to be rescued. And Jesus stepped in and won the day. But that same Savior, that son of David, calls us to follow in his footsteps, to walk in the way that he has set for us. And when Jesus is in us, when the glory of Christ has won our hearts, and that's what we value, above outward appearances and personal preservation and people's approval, there will be courage. And we will be people after God's own heart. Let's stand together. There are memorable moments like this one that go down in history in which we are called to walk in this and there's this very ordinary, average settings that God calls us to be faithful in when we, we need this as much as any other place. In his, in his book that I quoted from earlier, How to Sanctification Work, Powelson talks about how tracing out these themes in scripture and in your own personal storyline helps you also to see how God's changing you. And he tells the story of a girl named Charlotte who just held in fear, n- never never contributed much in in settings where she would have to speak up and and share and have an impact. She just kind of stayed to herself because she wasn't sure what people would think or how they would approve her or not. And and doing things like the Bible jam, reading God's word and being affected by what she saw there, she started to notice things were being different. There was fruit Powelson writes, how is it that Charlotte and I view her speaking up as a fruit of the Spirit? By the way, for some of you, not speaking up would also be a fruit of the Spirit. But for her, it was. That item is not on any list of fruit, though I think it's implicitly among such things of Galatians 5.23. We know it is good fruit because we understand her situational troubles and personal struggles in the light of Revelation. Fear of man coached Charlotte to stay in the background, to play it safe. In social groups, she was virtually a non-participant, unable to bring her thoughts to the point of joining in audibly. She was self-preoccupied, not loving. She was fearful, not free. As the fruit of repentance and faith, the Spirit freed her to participate. He loosens her tongue because that is what love and obedience now look like in Charlotte's life. And and what is God wanting to set loose in you? Where have you held back? Where have you relied on reading the room and using the value system of this age and how things visibly appear to you? And there isn't a heart that answers first to God, what is worthwhile to you? What do you want me to cultivate? What convictions are you building and instilling in me to lead me to do the very things that I thought I could never do that? Somebody else needs to volunteer. Somebody else needs to go forward. David was a real man. 
There's a big purpose that God had unfolding here. And in human responsibility, unless David answers this call in this moment, there's a giant that remains on that field. So I want to pray for us because what this means, reading this in light of the themes that are in your life personally, right? That, that's as varied as there are people in this room. And so I can't, I can't specify that for you, but I, I do want you to get a sense from the Lord. What are you facing right now? What awaits you in the future that he is preparing you for? How are you cultivating a heart that is after God's own? Let's pray. God, what help we receive from the reality that you give us in your word. God, thank you for stories. Thank you for concrete examples. Lord, thank you for people that we read about that lived 3,000 years before us. But the human condition is so common. And you still call us, Lord. You, You still move upon us in this way. So Spirit, Rome in the room now address our hearts where is there more of Saul in us than David where is there compromise where is there an attempt to manage life through human ingenuity selfish methods based on people's approval Where's there more of an attempt to drown out your spirit, your conviction, your leading, your prompting than there is availability to how you work in the midst of our need? Where are we distant from you? And, and what are you calling us to, God? God. What are you addressing in us to lead us more and more to be like the son of David and to serve your purposes? Lord, we we ask that we would have hearts for you. If nobody in the world, world said that mattered, there would be such a love and an affection in us for you if we stand alone. And God, that you would, you would lead us in every season to live by faith. God, I just pray for your favor at the start of our summer Bible jam, Lord, that we would have affection for you through your word, that times in the ordinary quiet places, we're visiting with you, we're bringing our soul before you. Would, would those be times when you are pleased to meet with us? Lord, grow us as your people, people who value your word, who talk about it, who we're always aware of what, what's God doing right now? Or would, would that not be something that's distant from us that we have to think about where the latest trending news item comes to mind immediately? Lord, we, we want to be attentive to you. We want to see how you see because you've been so faithful to us. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Be with you this week.